Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Andrew R. Holmes. Andrew is a teacher of history here at Queen's University Belfast, where we're recording today, and he's the author of the recently published book, The Irish Presbyterian Mind, Conservative Theology, Evangelical Experience and Modern Criticism, 1830 to 1930, just out from Oxford University Press. Andrew, congratulations on the book and thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So, so Andrew, uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from uh, Northern Ireland, from a place called uh, Coleraine, and I was educated there, was an undergraduate at Queen's, went to St Andrews in Scotland and then came back to do my PhD. Uh, and since then, uh, my work has been primarily upon religious history of this part of the world uh, and particularly of the Protestant tradition. Very good. Now your new book The Irish Presbyterian Mind just out from Oxford University Press uh, is perhaps uh, an unusual subject for some of our listeners but one that you've done a lot of work on and one that gives you quite an unusual and distinctive vantage point in the survey of the 18th and 19th centuries. Oh thank you very much for saying so um I suppose my particular perspective is that I'm looking at Irish Presbyterians from the point of view of a historian of religion. And in terms of Irish history, religion is usually seen as a marker of political and national identity. Uh, and as a consequence, religious beliefs and practices are made subservient to explaining the bigger Irish question. And growing up, uh, where I did with uh, family who were very uh, involved in organised religion, I always thought that that view of history and of religious history in Ireland was quite narrow. And so, as a consequence, when I decided to do my PhD, I tried to look at how ordinary Presbyterians in this part of the world experienced and practiced their religion in the eighteenth and nineteenth century, uh, because I thought that before you talk about religion and politics. You need to understand a bit about the religion. Um, and so from that point of view, my, my first book, um, which is uh, very kindly published by Oxford University Press as well, um, looked at things like psalm singing, preaching, calendrical customs, um, sexual misdemeanors amongst Presbyterians, uh, to try and get a, a broader sense of how religion could be not only shaped by the context, but could also shape the assumptions of the context. Okay, now the, the earlier book you just mentioned, that focused on an earlier period, is that right? It did, yes. It um, was looking at the transition, if you like, from a community that was primarily inward-looking, primarily concerned about uh, doctrinal issues amongst itself, to a much more outward-looking, much more evangelical um, a community. And as a consequence of that, the broader issue that it fed into was what is evangelicalism, how did it develop, and how specifically was it shaped by 
particular conditions in Ireland. Okay. Now, uh, Andrew, in the introduction to your book, you describe uh, Irish Presbyterians as being viewed as, and I quote, irredeemably puritanical, uncultured, anti-Catholic, and narrow-minded. Which bit of that is it in particular you disagree with? I don't necessarily disagree with those characterizations in if they're applied in specific cases. Uh, the problem is, I think, that Protestantism in general in Irish studies is possibly not treated with the um, seriousness with which it is, I think, it, it deserves. And as a consequence, I think stereotypes, quite lazy stereotypes sometimes, are used to talk Uh, about Protestants and my hope in this book as with all my work is to try and suggest actually reality is a bit more complex and actually there might be some relatively positive things to say about uh, these groups. Okay great. Andrew uh, this is a really big book it's what 120 130,000 words could you talk us through the structure you chose to adopt? It is in in terms of, of the approach and in terms of the structure it is a history from the top down. It is a history of the male elites within the denomination that's known as the Presbyterian Church um, in Ireland. Um, so it is it is a history of ideas, and in some ways it's, it's quite, quite an old-fashioned approach. Um, one of the main reasons I did this was because whenever I was doing my research for my first book, I was coming across all these 19th, early 20th century Irish Presbyterian writers who were publishing big books on big topics and nobody has ever written about them and it seemed to me that the lack of engagement with that source base was I think symptomatic of a broader issue in Irish history where religious ideas, religious professionals, um, their importance is assumed but nobody actually engages with what they wrote. Uh, So from that point of view it is looking at the views of these people who publish widely, but also talk not just about Irish issues and Irish events, but also about broader developments and struggles uh, that were affecting Christians throughout uh, the period. So that's really helpful. Your book, I think, describes in a very atmospheric way the kind of cadre that this group represented. So in the 100 or so years that are covered in here, I think you say there's about 1,500 ministers get trained for the Presbyterian Church through their principal educational um, programs. Can you tell us a little bit about those programs? Were they distinctive? Um, Was there some internal variation? What kinds of subjects did they cover? Um, And what kind of religion were they trying to promote? Yes, um, in terms of the 1,500, that's the number of students who went on to ordained ministry. There could have been um, uh, more uh, trained and then who didn't become ministers. Um, but generally speaking, I think one of the, the most the most important developments in the 19th century is that for the first time in their history, Irish Presbyterians are trained in Irish institutions. Up until uh, the late 18th century, most Presbyterian ministers, if not all, were trained in Scottish universities because they were uh, barred from the only university in Ireland, Trinity College Dublin, uh, because they weren't members of the state church, of the Episcopal Church of Ireland. Uh, and the influence of Scotland was incredibly important in terms of shaping their attitudes towards politics, uh, towards society and theology. In the 19th century, um, there's a real 
desire to make sure that the ministry is educated in Ireland. So first of all, they are educated in um, the Belfast Academical Institution, um, which in 1812 begins a college department, which the Presbyterian communities recognise as the equivalent of going to a Scottish university. Um, that develops, interestingly, in the 1810s and 1820s. The professors of theology that are chosen tend to be, well, they are Presbyterian evangelicals, um, committed to the more general upsurge of evangelical activism, but also committed to Presbyterian um, ideas. Tensions develop in the 1830s between INST and the Presbyterian churches about um, how the curriculum is delivered. Um, and as a consequence of that, um, a breach occurs between the institutions in the late 1830s. That could be potentially a problem, but at the same time, the British state is trying to rethink education in Ireland. And they introduce a new system of higher education called the Queen's University of Ireland eventually, which incorporates colleges in Belfast, Galway and Cork. Which is where we are today, right? Absolutely. Uh, and Queen's College Belfast, later Queen's University Belfast, becomes the main uh, forum for undergraduate education amongst Presbyterian ministers. At the same time, the Presbyterian Church itself is developing its own colleges. Uh, so in 1853, the Presbyterian College is set up in Belfast uh, to train um, theological, uh, train in theological studies. In 1865, another college is set up at McGee uh, College in Derry, um, which offers theology but also offers a non-denominational education, undergraduate education, uh, to any student who wants to to enrol. Uh, so you do get two slightly different uh, colleges in terms of their makeup, but for most of the 19th century, they are committed to the conservative Presbyterian evangelical ethos of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. So you mentioned uh, the word conservative there, Andrew, and in many ways what your book is doing is thinking about what this word means for Presbyterians with a confessional basis, but also within uh, society in Ireland and especially in Northeast Ireland, what becomes Northern Ireland towards the end of your book. Uh, so, so this word conservative is a very important word for, for, for this book, but it's, it's, a, it's a difficult word to use, isn't it? You, you point out somewhere uh, in the book that McGee College, I think, was one of the first to allow women to study. Very much so. The I, I have a big problem with the use of the labels conservative and liberal. Um, in an Irish and particularly an Irish Presbyterian context. Um, generally speaking, I would not want to make hard and fast connections between religious conservatism, political conservatism, social conservatism. And the, the reason for that is because up most of the writing on Irish Presbyterians divides the denomination into liberals and conservatives. Oh. And the issue there is that a straight line is drawn between theological liberals and political liberals and social liberals on the one hand, and on the other hand, conservative um, uh, religious people, uh, politically conservative and socially conservative. And what I have, have done in my other work leading up to this book is to, particularly in terms of religion and politics, to question that assumption. Um, and so, for instance, the, the great... Presbyterian leader of the 19th century is a man called Henry Cook. Um, Henry Cook um, led the campaign against 
uh, Arianism within the Synod of Ulster in the late 1820s. This is a non-Trinitarian or an anti-Trinitarian theological tendency. Very much so. Um, And he was um, lauded by Conservative Presbyterians as standing up for Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox Calvinism. Um, At the same time in the 1830s, he also was very involved in Conservative politics. And one of the things he tried to do was to build bridges between Presbyterians and the Protestant Church of Ireland um, because he felt that the Protestant minority in Ireland needed to band together against the threat of Irish Catholic nationalism. Now, the reason this is important was because Presbyterians, even though they made up 40-45% of the Irish population, were not part of the state church. And in the 18th century, they were uh, subject to uh, various uh, pieces of legislation which curtailed their involvement in politics. And as a consequence of that, Presbyterians ended up being at the forefront of Irish separatism and radicalism in the late 18th century. Mm. And so Henry Cook in the 19th century is painted by historians as somebody who brings together conservative religion and conservative politics in order to defend the Protestant constitution. Mm. Now, that's fine. But the problem is that most of Cook's fellow Presbyterian ministers utterly agreed with him in terms of conservative evangelicalism, but completely disagreed with his conservative politics, in particular his attempt to try and create unity with the old enemy of the Church of Ireland. Mm. And so as a consequence of that, one of the the arguments I want to make is that in the 19th century, Presbyterian principles are used by those opponents of Cook to criticise his policy of Protestant unity Mm. and to suggest that actually they ended up supporting the Liberal Party and the Liberal interest because they felt that better defended their denominational principles. So on that basis, I'm very, I'm very wary about conflating conservatism in different spheres. That's, that, that's a really helpful observation because it, it strikes me that one of the most important things about your book is its decision not to use conservative versus liberal dichotomy, but instead to use a confessional versus evangelical dichotomy as a way to explain both uh, changes and tensions within this Presbyterian community as it gradually solidifies through Cook and others in the early part of your your period and then as it really gets momentum uh, drawing on Princeton theology but also experiencing this very strange event in 1859 uh, the the, the fabulous (laughs) revival fabulous in every respect of that word tell us about what happens in 1859 and why that's actually a problem for some of your subjects well I think to make the more general point, uh, you're absolutely right. What I want to try to do in this book is to say that here we have a group that represents well over 90% of all the Presbyterians in Ireland. Uh, and the debate in that group is not necessarily between liberal and conservative, but about how to be conservative. Right. And the, the big argument that I'm trying to make in the book is that um, Presbyterian confessionalism on the one hand and evangelical general conservatism, on the other hand, are worked together in this period. At the beginning of the period, they reinforce each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also trying to suggest that there are tensions between those two things, which make it actually quite difficult by the time we get into the early 20th century 
to for conservatives of whatever description to differentiate themselves from each other. Um, so Presbyterians in the 19th century, generally speaking, tend to do quite well at holding together a commitment to the Calvinism of the Westminster Confession of Faith, yeah, yeah. a Presbyterian church organization, and a commitment to religious revival. Mm. And this is best seen in some ways in, in the 1859 revival that you mentioned, um, which is a remarkable explosion of of evangelical fervor in Ulster, it's reckoned around 100,000 people are converted. Uh, the Presbyterian Church is deeply involved in promoting it. Uh, most Presbyterians think it's a really positive thing, but a significant proportion of the ministers have are wary about what they see as the excesses of uh, this lay-led movement in many respects. So uh, you have women preachers, which is, is a problem, uh, but then you also have um, various physical manifestations, fainting, swooning, um, even stigmata in some cases developing amongst the laity. And there's a real concern amongst the clergy in particular to try and control that enthusiasm and to push it in uh, particular uh, ways. Um, mostly by the time we get to the 1860s, 1870s, Presbyterians find it quite easy to bring together confessional theology, particularly Princeton theology, with a commitment to revival. Um, the prime example of that is Robert Watts, who's the professor of systematic theology in Belfast and was a pupil of Hodges at a Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, he is, in many ways, the most obvious British exemplar of traditional Calvinism in the late 19th century. He's, he's a very important figure. But he also appears on the stage of D.L. Moody's revival meetings in Belfast in the right. 1870s and right. supports it. Uh, and there's, a, I think, quite a good example of somebody who brings together confessional conservatism and a commitment to evangelical spirituality uh, as well. Right. So in some ways, then, that, 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 in some ways what we see in your book is uh, a group... Uh, an initial consolidation of confessionalism and evangelicalism, but an increasing dissociation between them. So is, is evangelicalism good or bad for the Presbyterian mind in Ireland? It's a good question. I think on one level it's good. In fact, on one level it's very good because what it does is it allows Presbyterians in Ireland to be part of broader international networks. Uh, one of the points I hope that comes out of my book is that some of these Irish writers actually matter in a broader transatlantic context. So in terms of the Princeton Theological Review, for instance, at least two of the foreign editors in the 1870s and 1880s are professors at McGee College in Derry, Thomas Witherow and Thomas Crossgrey. So being part of that broader evangelical Presbyterian network allows or gives Irish Presbyterians a forum and a way to engage with those broader um, debates. In terms of the, the longer term influence of this, my argument is that the, the, the bringing together of confessionalism and evangelicalism works for most of this period. But ultimately what happens is the language of evangelical experience tends to dilute and to, to make more complex the conservatism of the Presbyterian Church. Because as evangelicals are talking about conversion experience, second blessing, mm -hmm. whatever it might be, the theological world 
is also increasingly talking about experience and they're moving away from more old-fashioned ways, if you like, with thinking about the authority of the Bible and biblical mm-hmm. interpretation. Mm-hmm. And they're beginning to draw a distinction between uh, textual criticism and criticism of the text and the spiritual experience to which that text gives witness. So they say that the Bible can be infallible uh, or fallible, excuse me, on issues of history and science. But in terms of the spiritual experience to which it gives witness, it is authoritative. And the problem is that the language of experience is used by theological liberals and is also used by uh, popular evangelicalism. And it's very difficult sometimes in, in terms of the use of that rhetoric to define exactly where the boundary lies. Okay, so we might think of Robert Watts or Thomas Crossgrey as being a very different figure from Schleiermacher. But ultimately, whether it's German higher criticism or whether it's a kind of movement away from confessional orthodoxy towards emphasizing spirituality, you meet in a common ground of experience. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to over theorize that. Um and, and my point is a, a rather basic one that it's the, a shared rhetoric right. and a shared language of experience, which is the key thing. So the reason why this matters is because in 1927, a professor in the college in Belfast, uh, J.E. Davy, is tried for heresy by the church um, because there are there's a group known as the Bible Standards League. Um, led by a minister called the Reverend James Hunter uh, from East Belfast, who are convinced that there are professors in the college who are depart who have departed from confessional creedal Calvinism. So this is the closest we come here to the American fundamentalist movement. Uh, uh, very much so. And local newspapers, the secular press in Northern Ireland, draw a clear parallel and clear links between what's happening in Dayton, Tennessee, right. with the Scopes Monkey Trial and what's happening to Davy and Belfast. Right. And it is described as fundamentalism versus modernism. Right. Now, Davy is a complex figure. Um, he was appointed to a chair in the Presbyterian College in 1917, and he was only in his early 20s. He'd right. never been a minister. Right. Um, but he had had a, a very uh, impressive academic career at Cambridge, where he's elected a, a fellow of one of the colleges. Hmm. But... He was deeply influenced by modern psychology and he very much wanted to try and restate Orthodox Christianity in the language of modern scholarship, of modern psychology. So he talked a lot about emotion. He talked a lot about religious experience. Hmm. Um, The problem for people associated with the Bible Standards League was that that seemed to be a way of diluting a commitment to confessional orthodoxy. Um, And so as a consequence, heresy charges were laid against him. Uh, He wasn't the first um, prominent Presbyterian to be um, confronted with accusations of um, heresy. There was a man in in 1915 called F.W.S. O'Neill, who was a missionary in China, um, whom Hunter had uh, accused of departing from the faith. Uh, James Hare, a professor of theology in the college, um, was an, an official investigation uh, was launched against him in 1926 because of Hunter's accusations. Um, so, so Hunter was looking for a cause. Hunter Hunter was 
in some ways looking for a fight. Right. Um, and in the Davy case, it goes to the full trial before the Belfast Presbytery. Now, um, the trial itself is a sensation. Um, it's in terms of Britain and Ireland, it's a remarkable event in the 1920s and is actually really quite significant and also quite unique in terms of uh, the length to which it goes. There are other uh, problems in other denominations in, in the United Kingdom, but they tend not to be as explosive mm. as the Davy Heresy trial. Mm. Um, Davy is resoundingly exonerated by the Belfast Press and on appeal to the General Assembly. Um, Hunter and a, a number of others leave the Presbyterian Church in Ireland and form the Irish Evangelical Church, which is later the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And how does Davy defend himself to be exonerated against such serious charges? Um, there, there are a number of reasons, I think, why he's, he's exonerated. Um, he does put up quite an impressive defence of his position, and even his um, supporters say afterwards that they were surprised at how orthodox he sounded. Um, So there was definitely an attempt to ensure that he presented what he was saying in the language of the the, the confession. Um, I think there was also a sense within the Presbyterian Church that they didn't want a major eruption. Um, So the importance of the middle ground within denominations, I think, matters a lot in terms of acting as a break towards anything um, uh, anything seismic Mm. in that regard. And we also have to remember that in 1927, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland is now overwhelmingly in Northern Ireland, a new state, uh, which itself only came into being uh, in the context of extreme violence and upheaval in the early 1920s. So there's a real concern not to, to rock the boat. But the other issue which relates to the broader argument I'm making is that Davy, both before the Presbytery and before the General Assembly, stood up and said, at the age, as a teenager, I underwent the experience of conversion. My father, who's a supporter of Moody and revivalism, was the father of my faith and led me to Christ. A few years later, I had I was struggling with doubts. I went to the Keswick Convention and I received the second blessing there. And he says that was, but for that experience, he would not have been able to reconcile (laughs) his faith with modern biblical criticism. So he was basically arguing that his evangelical experience, which most Presbyterians could say, yes, that sounds true was the reason for why he was able to adopt more modern ways. Right. And so I finished that, that final chapter with the, the rather tongue-in-cheek um, uh, rhetorical question, how could a saved man be a heretic? Right. Uh, and it's, it's, it's trying to, 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 to make the point that that shared language of experience, uh, Davy understood it in terms of psychology, most other Presbyterians understood it in terms of personal conversion, but because the language was the same, mm-hmm. It, it's made it much more difficult for Hunter and others to, to make their case. Well, Hunter makes the case, he loses the trial, he leads a small exodus out of the Presbyterian Church, sets up a new communion or a new fellowship of congregations. Are they explicitly confessional? Uh, not initially. And the same tension between conservative evangelicalism and confessionalism um, occurs within that small uh, group as well. 
And it's important to emphasize here that one of the, the one of the, the important names uh, or, or individuals associated with Hunter was a man called W.J. Greer, mm-hmm. um, who was actually a student at Princeton Theological Seminary in the United States in the 1920s and was a great admirer of Gresham Machen. Um, and as a consequence, Greer was very much on the confessional, the, 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 the confessional side of that conservative debate. Hunter, on the other hand, was very involved in the Keswick Convention, uh, very involved in um, interdenominational revivalist work, and represents the more evangelical, more experiential side. Mm. And Hunter, I think, was also quite a quite a uh, an awkward character in some ways, and. There were tensions within the early Irish Evangelical Church between both of them, and it was only eventually, um, the uh, later in the nineteen thirties, that the Westminster standards were actually adopted as the, the standards of the church. Hmm. Well, Andrew, I'm conscious that time is passing by, and you've got duties this afternoon. But I mean, you've written this incredibly rich volume, um, and we've only really scratched the surface of it. So, over the hundred or so years that you're describing here, we see the um, the coming together of different branches of Presbyterianism to form one being. And then at the end of the period you're describing, we see how that begins to fall apart a little bit in the first of what will become several increasingly important secessions. We also see state formation happening through this period. We see um, tensions moving up to home rule, eventually the formation of Northern Ireland and what becomes the Republic of Ireland. We see theological change. We see change in the knowledge and appreciation of science. There's so much here that we could talk about, but really briefly, can you tell us about the science issue? Another thing that happened in 1859, not just religious revival, but the publication of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. How did Irish Presbyterians respond to that in the midst of so many other cultural pressures? The initial response was quite muted, actually. Um, the, The bigger concern for Irish Presbyterians in the 1860s was uh, Bishop Colenso and essays and reviews, in other words, um, what we might call believing critics within the churches who are adopting uh, German critical scholarship towards the Bible. And Irish Presbyterian scholars in the 1860s were primarily concerned about combating that threat. The science and religion debate and opposition to uh, Darwinian evolution only really becomes really significant in 1874 when uh, John Tyndall um, is elected president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, and they have their annual or their uh, their regular meeting in Belfast that year. And Tyndall uses the opportunity as president to launch a full-fronted assault on uh, theological interference with scientific explanation. And he basically tells theologians to be quiet to, uh, when it comes to talking about human origins and the origins of life. Mm. It utterly scandalizes Presbyterians in, in, in Belfast in particular, and Watts thunders against um, this explicit statement of materialism. Now, what is important, I think, is that Irish Presbyterians don't like materialistic understandings of evolution and human origins, but in no way are they biblically, biblical literalists. So their opposition to Darwin <coughs> Excuse me, Darwin's theory of evolution is primarily based on the moral implications of it mm. uh, and how it challenges 
basic understandings of how the human mind works and how society works. Um, so we don't get sort of like six-day creationism or whatever at this stage. Right. Uh, but it's also important just to emphasize that actually most conservatives who respond to Darwinian evolution in this period do not do so on the basis of an exegesis of Genesis 1 to 11. That's something which develops more in the early 20th century. So where are they finding opposition to this from? It's primarily in terms of what they see as, if it's a materialistic universe, how then can you talk about right and wrong? How can you make moral judgments? Um, So they're very concerned about the moral implications of a world that can only be understood in matter. Now, what is very interesting whenever we come to the 1920s is, though there are, um, there is potentially parallels between what's happening in, in Scope's Monkey Trial and what's happening in the Davy Heresy Trial, evolution and anti-evolution is hardly mentioned in, in, Ireland. in Northern Ireland in the 1920s. Um, the focus of the attack on Davy is all about how he is challenging the statement of Christian orthodoxy as given in the Westminster Confession. Mm. Uh, human origins, evolution is hardly mentioned at all, mm. which I think is, is is a really quite significant difference with what's happening in the United States. Mm. Fascinating. Well, look, we, we could sit and talk about this for hours, and we probably will. Um, but thanks so much for giving us your time. Before we, before we go, can you tell us what you're working on at the moment or what your future plans might involve? I've, um, I've just started a, a, a big research a project um, funded generously by the Leverhulme Trust um, to look at um, fundamentalism as an Ulster phenomenon. Um, looking back at the period that my book covers, but trying to look at it from the bottom up and trying to see how those groups that organised themselves against what they saw as modernism or against liberalism, how they organised themselves and how they expressed themselves. Mm. Um, because one thing which uh, your listeners are Probably the only thing they know about Northern Ireland is probably Ian Paisley. Um, and he was a Presbyterian, wasn't he? No, he wasn't the Presbyterian. He founded <laughs> a, a church called the Presbyterian Church, but um, but he is seen as the, the the very incarnation of a distinctive form of Ulster fundamentalism. Uh, and what this study is doing is, is trying to look at the background to that for the first time, because uh, most scholars who write about Paisley tend to be political scientists and focused on the present day. Well, that sounds fascinating. I look forward to seeing that when it comes out. Um, in the meantime, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on to the programme. Congratulations again for your new book, uh, The Irish Presbyterian Mind, Conservative Theology, Evangelical Experience and Modern Criticism, 1830-1930, just published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for your time and see you soon.